0: Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? Comics Podcast for its Savage Critics website. This is episode 38, and in it, Graham McMillan and I discuss Russell T. Davies' The Writer's Tale, Action Comics issue number 900, Rob Fields' Shrink, Casanova, Brightest Day, The Idea of Black Avengers, and The Appeal of Superheroes. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hello!
1: You you spoke first. This might be a first. <laughs> Everything we know is different.
0: <laughs> it's true, man. Welcome to Bizarro... Wait, what? Which, I don't know, what would the Bizarro version of that be?
1: Um, I'm really tempted to see this Blush Page podcast. You've completely thrown me off. I was going to tell you that I think we should change our theme music.
0: Oh, yes? Why?
1: Have you ever heard of the Incredible Bongo Band? No. The Incredible Bongo Band are, as the name suggests, an incredible bongo band. Uh, But they have a track called Bongolia, which, Uh if nothing else, it's a great name. But I swear to God, I can't hear it without singing along in my head, and I sing along with your name. I don't know how, I don't know when this started, I don't know how this started, but every single time I hear it, I'm going, Jeff Lister, Jeff Lister, Jeff Lister. That's (laughs) awesome. Firstly, we need to find people who can sing. Secondly, we need to somehow get the rights for Bongolia. Right. And then we need to put the two together. So we actually have, like, you know, a backing band actually going, Jeff Lister, Jeff Lister. (laughs) Because it does that, and then there's a bongo break. Uh Because it's. Incredible bonga brand, obviously. And right. in that, that's when you do your introduction to the episode.
0: <laughs> wow, you've got it all figured out. i oh I'm very I,
1: impressed. Oh, I can't I'm not joking. Every single time I hear the song, I honestly I'm going, Jeff Lester, Jeff Lester. Also, what you can't see, and luckily neither can our listeners, is every single time I do that, I am dancing. <laughs> Even what I'm talking to right now. I am dancing. <laughs> in my chair.
0: So, <laughs> wow! Well, that uh, that, that is a, an impressive tribute to the power of music. I
1: will uh, will have to hunt that up. Uh, I I will have to send it to you because really, it's just it's incredible. It, the Incredible Bongo Band in general are just spectacular, but um, there's something about Mongolia, and they also do a version of Apache, which I know from The Shadows from way way back. Uh, oh. That also just has to be heard to be believed. <laughs>
0: Well, it sounds pretty impressive, I have to say. Um Yeah, I, I sort of it's it's kind of a shame in a way that uh our dear listeners have to put up with me as producer as opposed to you, because you have spectacularly ambitious ideas. Clearly. You're like all we need is a group of just a choir singing our names and uh, to the song that we'll get the rights to it. I'm like, yeah, I should probably mix this up and try at least another you know, open source uh nine inch nail song, but
1: nah. <laughs> that, that's really good because I'd just be like, copyright what's that? Here's whatever. What's most likely to get a suit? Here's the glee kids singing something you know
0: <laughs> you know if the glee kids were singing nine inch nails i would let myself uh put beyond that copyright firing line i totally would
1: i, I know that you uh, have dropped off the glee um viewing a bit uh last night they had their you know everyone should be who they are let's all hug and embrace ourselves episode um but if it when it's on Hulu or something you have to watch for like an hour into it where they decide that they're going to try and inspire Rachel to save her original nose and not have a nose job, and they do this by having, by just dancing to a song, which is just like this, I mean, it's it's a good song and it's probably like a real song that everyone knows that I don't know, but it's like, it's a it's a, you know, a dancey song where the only lyrics is somebody going Barbara Streisand end. <laughs> I honestly was watching it yesterday. it was like, "What the hell is this? This is the greatest thing ever." <laughs> I, I've just actually looked it up. It's it's a band. It's a band called Duck Sauce.
0: Duck Sauce.
1: Yeah, uh, and the song is called Streisand. and it's just. It, first of all, it's a rip-off of Fat Boy Slim because he did a song called Michael Jackson, right? Uh, which is exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, except it's not. They, it doesn't just have Michael Jackson. It names other people as well. Right. Uh, but no, the song literally is just like, everyone's asking that, like, the music stops and this voice just goes, dries out And then the music starts again. <laughs> Which, as a, as a, an argument for Rachel to keep her original nose, I honestly thought was both inspired and so shitty. <laughs> I couldn't quite get over it.
0: <laughs> well, I think, I, yeah, I just, I have to say, man, I... Oh, gosh, Glee. I mean, it 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 went from being like a guilty pleasure to just some sort of sense of like... Sh- guilt? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then somehow transmorgified into just shame. Just like, oh, I watched it. I enjoyed it. Like, I tried watching part of an episode on, on Hulu recently, and I made it maybe about eight and a half minutes in. I just did. I was just like... You know, there there was a lot of really interesting stuff in the first season of Glee, and I just felt like they sort of jested that stuff to make it sort of more of a streamlined sort of pop profit machine. You know, unless unless it was stuff that seemed like tied to, to Kurt's storyline, and I just I was like, mm, I don't I don't care. Like it's kind of interesting because there's kind of apparently there's a kind of online debate going about how Glee so ignores its own internal continuity that nothing kind of means anything, I guess. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you would be able to speak to this and, and see if it bothers you since, you know, coming from comic book continuity is you well, do. It,
1: it, it really doesn't, but that's partially because I am coming from comic book continuity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I am okay with... Um, I'm okay with almost anything in service of the story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm okay with things just blatantly contradicting if it contradicts in an entertaining way.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and I think Glee always... at least is aware of how much it's contradicting itself and will comment on it.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm mm-hmm. um, Which really does earn it brownie points with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think the Glee... I think Glee's continuity is at least as tight as, like, Marvel or DC's. <laughs> uh, and when it, when it does contradict itself, uh-huh. then it does so in a more entertaining way. Right. I mean, you know, there's no Swamp Thing rampaging around Seattle, or the Seattle stand in Star City, but, you know, you at the same time have characters just openly saying in the dialogue, you know, this makes no sense, but it's because blah.
0: Right. So, so no, you're okay with it. It's not a problem. I, I'm either. okay
1: with it, but at the same time, like I don't take Glee. I don't want to say I don't take it seriously, but I don't take it seriously. I think the idea of a show like Glee, where you really care, if you really care about the continuity, you're kind of missing the point. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: It's like, well, why aren't you caring that they're bursting out into song, you know, in class? Right. Or. The, I mean yesterday they had a scene where the what are they called the warblers appear in the, the the um playground and all of a sudden this band just happens to be there with the string section and it's like <laughs> you know you could completely bind to it because that's the conventions of the genre
0: well it's the conventions of the show I mean they don't actually have them singing in other classes outside of glee class unless it's a fantasy sequence right isn't it that- still somewhat defined. Oh,
2: or they... no, no,
1: now they're just, like, singing everywhere.
0: Oh, okay, all right, well, that's good to know. <laughs>
1: uh, no, I mean, there's an awful lot of fancy sequences as well, but, like, you know, singing in public places is now happening in continuity, quote-unquote. Oh. Like, it's happening, in, and it's actually being... It's not just a fancy sequence, I guess, is what I'm saying.
0: Right, the the participants still Are all aware, yes. Yeah, yeah, still sort of um, carry on, as if that happened. But, you
1: know... You again, you buy into it, and I think for a show likely you just you can 't get hung up on continuity because it 's not that sort of show right it 's like getting hung up on the continuity of a soap opera
0: uh, yeah, which is ironic because honestly soap operas sort of make used to make their bank on continuity, you know what I mean like uh, i don 't know i it, maybe this is just me, but it it's and it's i'm hoping we'll be able to tie this into your uh your question from yesterday about superhero comics—if you want to discuss it—but um, but you know, I I think continuity is part of sort of what allowed superhero comics to kind of uh, escape their sort of boom and bust cycle as part of other genres, and sort of allowed them to become this kind of weird dominant genre at the in the, in the '60s, uh, pretty much up until now.
1: Uh, so. I. I i agree and disagree at the same time Mm -hmm. i think i think what you're saying is true but i also think that it did so at the cost of the genre if that makes sense yeah 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 well uh, i I, I, it changed the genre so much yeah adherence and continuity changed the genre so much that it wasn't the same genre when it started off
0: well, and I also think that it's one of those things that I mean for me ultimately I think what I'll end up arguing is is that continuity actually was a very healthy ingredient for superhero comics up to a certain point. And once the comics, once the characters in the comics went longer than the continuity, you know, it's like a structure that grows so large it can't exit. you know, it can't stand up under its own weight anymore and then it just collapses. Collapses, and then you you know you still have people building on top of the rubble and the wreckage, and you know so it continuity is I mean I think ultimately a huge sham now, but I mean it's for characters that have been around for 50 for two or seventy years exactly, and therefore yeah. you just you can't have it, you know at a, at a certain point uh, the snake has to eat its own tail. I mean,
1: what's interesting about soap opera continuity versus comic continuity is soap opera continuity has the element of time. The yes. comic continuity doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because you can't pretend that they're the same age because they're all visibly older. Right. Something that... um, And this will eventually tie into what I was asking on Twitter yesterday. Uh, something I was reading over the weekend was the Russell T. Davis book, The Writer's Tale, the, the, <laughs> which is the series of emails between himself and the journalist when he's writing the last... Well, it's essentially his last two years on Doctor Who. It's the last season and then specials that followed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he makes an argument for television being an incredibly complex medium. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he makes that argument by saying Coronation Street, which started in the UK in 1960, has had one character that's been in the show for the entire length of the series. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's amazing. That's, you know, at that point, over 40 years of story for one character that does not get rewritten, does not... uh, basically it unfolds within your eye before your eyes, right, uh, and all has to be taken into account, but because he ages, it all also has to I guess add up to something. It all has to be taken into account. You can't just be like, well, that never happened." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true at the same time, like you you should have that with comics, but you can't have that with comics because the characters don't age
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you either do like Grant Morrison and say, "Well, it all happened." Mm-hmm. Kind of, <laughs> right. Or you do uh, what a Superman where some of it happened, some of it didn't, and it's never quite sure what is in continuity and what's out of continuity. Or, or a much better example of that is actually is Marvel mm-hmm. because Marvel theoretically is all in continuity, but then all of a sudden they'd be like, yeah, that wasn't Vietnam <laughs> War, that was right. Afghanistan.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I know, and it, that that actually is sort of a. Uh, uh... I don't know, you know, I It's. I, I. think Marvel in some ways has had a difficult time with it, because at least with the sort of, weirdly, the excuses to try and explain why everything still happened for DC, in a way, is part of what ends up tying it into sort of the fantastical nature of superheroes in the first place. Yeah. You know, when, once you get that, that weird, you know... Just, just that great workaround of Earth One and Earth Two. You know, suddenly it's like this huge, whole new um, series of things to explore. You know, whereas with Marvel, the whole like, uh you know, where it just kind of gets retconned and not addressed. It, you know, and but, it comes out. But the thing
1: is, it also doesn't get retconned. Like, no, it no, just no, no, no. doesn't get mentioned, and then all of a sudden there'll be something that's replaced it.
0: I'm sorry, yeah, I guess I guess when I say retconned, I mean it gets changed without being explained. I guess. Yeah, I guess it's I guess, really
1: sort of like stealth yeah. retcon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Stealth conned. <laughs> stealth Con sounds. StealthCon sounds like a transformer.
0: Yeah, it does, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> he's a tank and a gun, but you can't see him. Stealth StealthCon.
0: <laughs> That'd be great, cause he's a ninja robot. Hello, we just made <laughs> millions of dollars.
1: Hasbro, call me. <laughs> Um, no, but it's it's it it is a weird thing. It's, so the, anyway, so the Russell T. Davis book is the reason that I asked everyone on Twitter yesterday why do you read superhero comics? Right? Because Russell, uh, at some point, some uh, the guy says to Davis, um, essentially like, is there something more than silly Doctor Who stories to Doctor Who?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Are you commenting on? life as we know it as opposed to this fantastical life and he's he puts forward the theory of course you are and that you you have to like it's impossible not to
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and i read that and i kind of thought i'm not really sure that's true of most superhero books i i think most superhero books these days are about superhero books and not about real life mm-hmm. um and i was like am i just being really cynical right <laughs> so i asked everyone why do you read superhero comics uh, the answers were... um, It was very odd. The uh-huh. first wave uh-huh. wa- was great. The answers were really sincere.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Second wave, I started getting people being sarcastic. I had at least two people essentially say, because it stops me killing myself. Like, it's sarcast- sarcastically done seriously. Um, How do you and know that- they were sarcastic? Because I know who they are. Oh, I see. Um... And then I ha- then I got retweeted by DC Comics. Oh, wow. And then I got, like, this entirely overwhelming third wave wow. of people who, A, didn't necessarily understand the question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I got a lot of, I read superhero comics because comics are awesome. Right. And it's like, yeah, they are, but that's not what I was asking.
0: Well, I think that's people
1: well, the, who, that, yeah. No, exactly. That, that's when you sort of get to, like, the... Well, maybe it's because, like, that is comics for you.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: They, so, like, superhero comics are awesome because comics are awesome because superhero comics are comics.
0: Exactly. exactly. Like,
1: you literally know no better.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Um, or no different, I should you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but something the thing that was really nice, I guess, from the whole experience was, so many people are essentially saying, I'm reading superhero comics because they are an inspiration
2: to me. Hmm.
1: Whether in terms of the... Characters having the example of characters who try and do good when it's very easy for them just to be superior, right, is an inspiration. But also, a lot of people essentially said the imagination is inspirational, too. Hmm.
0: Well, that's which is which is fantastic. I mean, I it's great, it's one of those weird things where I sort of measure myself and be like. I, you know, because I think I was part of the third and a half wave, which was something along the lines of like, I don't even understand how to answer that question, group. You know, and
1: uh, there's only a couple of you. Yeah.
0: Oh, good. Well, we we're a very small wave. <laughs> uh, but, but because I, I, I definitely, I don't know. It's interesting. We we talked about the whole Superman as inspiration. Uh, I think, on our last podcast and even looked at some of the people with for whom we're not entirely sure that Superman was... They were taking the inspiration from the right ways, I suppose, or in, in the right degrees. Um, I'm always fascinated and very touched by people who, uh, who, who look at fictional characters and concepts as inspirations because I feel like that is probably something that was very much more true of me when I was young, I suppose, and is now in some other... I think I've just moved on from that, you know? I think... It, just because I, I, I feel like the game's a little bit rigged in a way, so it's very
1: easy. Yeah, yeah it's it's very easy to be cynical. Yeah,
0: uh, well, yes. Yeah, it's very easy to be cynical about it, yeah. Um, the, what is interesting, though, is... At
1: least in the first wave,
2: mm-hmm.
1: at least half of the people responded said I read superhero comics because for nostalgia Mm, mm -hmm. because I used to enjoy it
2: right right
1: (laughs) which I thought was really telling as well
2: Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I think there is an an element of we were we we were young once Um, (laughs) no but an element of uh, we we got a purer pleasure from superheroes
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we became I don't know if it's too aware of the man behind the curtain Or too aware that life wasn't like that Right. But at some point we stopped believing in superheroes, if you like mm-hmm. In a way that, uh, for example, Grant Morrison I, I believe still fully believes in superheroes
0: Right, right Yeah, you definitely get that sense and And I would say at least from the time I sort of spent hanging out with him, very brief though it was, I sort of get the sense Chris Robertson does as well, and I think some other people. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if Wade does, because Lord knows he spends a a lot of time talking about sort of the inspiration of Superman, for example. Um, In fact, it it would be really interesting to see the number of people who in the comics industry, you know, are the ones who are like, I'm sure they would all, all say that they believe in superheroes, but I, you know, um, I think, in, in that sort of closed ranks way, but but the number of people who really do as opposed to the number of people who are who are making the motions with their face.
1: Um. I, I was really tempted to follow up on Twitter with a question of, those of you who work in superhero comics, why do you work in superhero comics? But I knew that just depressed me. <laughs> well, no, because again, coming from the, the Russell Davis book, mm-hmm. he's writing Doctor Who because he's a fan. Right. And because he loves the character, and because he loves the genre And even when I think that he makes Terrible, terrible decisions um, That's still really evident
0: But isn't isn't Russell Davies I, And I'm, you're absolutely right But didn't he come into Doctor Who As a 900 pound gorilla Isn't it a little bit like uh, J. Michael Straczynski writing comics in a way it's uh, Russell T. Davies, unless I'm, oh, yeah no, 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 no. Okay, Steve sorry, Stephen Moffat is the guy who I think of as the 900-pound gorilla. In had,
1: what way are you thinking 900-pound gorilla? Because, I mean, Davies was a big name in British drama when he took on Doctor Who.
0: Right,
2: and
1: Moffat he was... He'd done a, Queerless Folk, he'd done right. Second Coming, he'd done a lot of stuff that was really popular, so it was it was a thing when he took over.
0: Right, it was a thing, and, and Moffat was sort of the same way, because Moffat, similarly, coupling was huge over the... In, in the UK, I think, right? as, as yeah. well as some Got of the, other the stick, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's somebody else who came from... But also,
1: Moffat was also known for writing Doctor Who by that point, because he was known as, like, the guy who'd written the smart, scary episodes from the new series when Russell Davis was in charge. Right. So, in, in a way, he was much less of an unknown quantity.
0: Right. Well, right, that is, that is true. But these guys are both pretty big heavyweights to walk into kind of the Doctor Who arena, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a way, it's sort of like if, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's kind of ironic. I was the, the, the horrible comparison would be, it's like if David E. Kelly took over Wonder Woman is what it would be like.
2: <gasps>
1: Gasp. No, um, <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because there, there's a point where, because the, the Davis book actually includes him being like, you know, we're going to ask Stephen Moffat to take over my job.
2: hmm
1: Will he say yes? That's in the book. Mm-hmm. All of that is there. Uh, and he points out, you know, for him to take over Doctor Who, he's going to have to stop working with Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson on the Tintin movies. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that he pretty much is like, yes, that's what I want to do rather than do this. Mm-hmm. is like, that's a sign of how much he wants to do the job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that if I asked superhero creators, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. I really, really genuinely worry that if they were honest, they'd be like, because it's the dominant, it's the dominant genre. Right. Like, I don't really, like, I might be interested in things superheroes in another world, but I'm interested in them because I want a paycheck.
0: Well, I mean, and I think this is the, the reason why I, I think most of the writers in the marketplace would love a more diversified market. Because I think, honestly, it's that idea of, what's for dinner, you know what I mean? Like, the idea that, you know, I, I think most of them would be like, yeah, I love superheroes um, until I had to eat them three meals a day for, like, seven years, you know Sure, what I mean?
1: yeah, no, e- exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I, I think that that's kind of, I mean, I used to think that, uh, I used to think that I loved comics, like, with a white-hot passion um, until I burn out. And then I was kind of like, wow, I'm nothing compared to uh, the, you know, the fact that both you and, like, Hibbs have been participating in comics day in and day out for long, you know, as long as I have, and technically longer, because at a certain point I just dropped out. I was just like, I do not care. I do not care about Marvel. I do not care about DC. I still love comics, but it's like, that's why I'm like, you know, I rely mainly on a lot of other different stuff as opposed to the big superheroes, you know? It's like, I I love... I I love the idea of superheroes. I'm incredibly bored with... Superhero comics? Well, no, no. Actually, I love superhero comics. I'm just... I'm tired of Marvel and DC superhero comics, you know? I'm just kind of... I feel like the characters are kind of debased, you know what I mean? Like, I I sort of feel like... um, especially as a Marvel guy, I feel strangely like somebody in exile, you know? I kind of feel like some dude who's like an expatriate in some, you know, company who's able to sort of, you know, check in on, you know, his beloved homeland just in part to kind of see what new, you know, horrors are being uh, visited upon his, you know, uh, beloved cities and towns. Except that those cities and towns are like, I don't know, Spider-Man you know and sometimes it's not like there's anything different but you just kind of have that kind of you know it it's sort of a different form of nostalgia but when i spend a lot of time thinking about comics superhero comics i'm like man i would love to see something done like blank like i would really love the the fact that comics are being written by middle-aged men but, like, superheroes aren't ostensibly middle-aged seems like a very difficult conundrum now, you know? Like, and it doesn't surprise me in some ways that some of the younger dudes in comics are building very big names for themselves with the idea of, like, yeah, they can bring sort of younger guy concerns or concerns that tie in more closely to, you know, sort of what's relevant to them in a way. But by the same token, there is no idea of, like, yes, yeah, Spider-Man's never going to grow old with me, so to speak, you know? In fact, this is the very perverse realization that I had the other day, is it's a lot like uh, Playboy Playmates, You know what I mean? Like, that's the weird, it's a totally weird comparison. But, like, back when I was a young kid, and unfortunately I had access to way too many Playboy magazines, I used to look at the centerfolds, and, you know, they would have the biographical information in them where they talked about their, so they'd always talk about their birth date. And I remember as a kid, like, you know, 10 or 11 years old, like, sort of calculating in my head, like, wow, this girl's... 20, or this woman's like 18, like in another seven years, I'm going to be the same age as a Playboy Playmate, which means in theory I'm going to be able to date them or be equal to them or something, you know? Like that has, I mean, obviously, that's only the sort of thing that makes sense when you're 10 years old, but unfortunately, by keeping track of that, as I got older, I'm like, man, it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder to check out the age on Playmate centerfolds you know what i mean because it's like they're 18 or 20 like they're absurdly young and which is probably why i haven't picked up a playboy magazine in like i don't know eight years or something like that and it it's a it's the same thing with superheroes as a kid you read them and it's like wow someday i'm going to be as old as spider-man you know and I'm going to be a contemporary or he's going to be a little bit older but not much but someday I'm going to be in the shoes that Spider-Man is in in the sense of I'm going to be going to college and I'm going to be fighting with my girlfriend over really dumb things because comic book writers don't know a lot about women but I didn't know that (laughs) at 10 or 11 but I'm like I can't wait to have a fight because I was somewhere else uh, and didn't explain where I was that'll be awesome you know, and now that now that I'm this age, I'm sort of like, you know, I think it's something that you and I talked about. I'm sure we've talked about everything by this point. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, like, where are the married superheroes that have, like, good marriages? You know what I mean? That have marriages that make sense.
1: But that's because they can't write marriages that make sense. It's weird, weird first of all, that Superman is still married, and right. in a good way.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, is he the only... Married superhero whose marriage is like not dysfunctional. I don't know. I I I, uh, I, I have a horrible feeling he is. And um, well, hmm. you could even make the argument that these days they're trying their best to make his marriage dysfunctional.
0: I was about uh, to say, periods where it's
1: safe for the last two years. <laughs> um, I told you before, my if I was going to take over Superman after grounded, what my first story would be, right? Uh, that was going to take clark to marriage therapy to be like you abandoned me for two years seriously (laughs) i know you have a really important job but what the fuck
0: yeah actually that would be great honestly i mean it, it would be it would be great if you could do it in a sort of classic you know weisinger era superman sort of thing with like lois and superman you know superman in the superman outfit sitting in the marriage counseling office you know the
1: worst part is like i i thought it through far too much like i realized that (laughs) superman would actually eventually open like clark would open up to this counselor and come out as being superman to her right she obviously couldn't tell anyone because she's a she's a counselor she would have to Mm -hmm. like keep a secret and he could be like the one person who isn't lois that he could confide in completely And I was like, that actually would make sense. And then it was like this is stupid that I'm thinking about this.
0: Dude, I have bad news for you. One of the ideas that I've been outlining forever is, is the idea of a superhero therapist. You know? Like I would love to do a book that really is about, you know, that would play between the ideas of of being able to look at the superheroes through the spectrum of Kind of like being an adult, and not in a way that necessarily makes that makes fun of superheroes or just mocks them, but tries to sort of look at the ways that you know that superheroes can be metaphors for many things. I guess. Do do you know how who got there first? Uh, Rob Liefeld. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. Were, were you
1: pissed when it happened? But you're like, oh, god damn it! Well, you know, so you're the th- taking my good idea and you're making it shit.
0: Well, if, I was kind of relieved because I honestly oh, feel like, I like it's it? the sort of thing. Yeah, I sort of feel like it's the sort of thing that I can um, that I can actually pitch and is not going to be totally embarrassing. Because honestly, I, I am firmly convinced that he sketched four of those things uh, in an afternoon before meeting with J-Lo's agent or something and, and selling the pitch. You know what I mean? Like, you've never seen anything from them since. You've never seen anything from them before. I mean, and and the the ones that I remember, it's like they're barely a step above, like, Rob Liefeld trying to draw a bizarro, you know, Peraro... Uh, Comic strip, you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. it's a it's I, a I, single panel gag cartoon about superheroes, like oh, oh he's short, therefore he can't satisfy her in bed, you know, kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I think there's a lot more places you can go than that, Rob. So
1: I'm now looking it up. It's called Shrink, apparently. Rob oh. Rob Liefeld Shrink,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there you go. It was J Lo. I completely forgot the J connection.
0: Oh yeah, Joe. I, I don't know how you could forget that, Graham. <laughs> Uh, it looks like, from this website that claims
1: to have all of Rob Liefeld's work, it looks like he only ever did five.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what i was saying. It's like, I know there was like... Which are a
1: guy on fire, a giant man, ice man, a tiny man, and essentially it's thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Let, let's see what the punchlines are, shall we? <laughs>
0: Oh, wow, they're terrible. See, I told you. Did you just the, not the,
1: pay attention? The shrink, the shrink says, so, Doc, is this what they mean when they say I'm getting my rocks off?
0: Yes, right? And j people were
1: like... The short, the, the Atom guy, who completely, by accident, has an outfit that looks just like uh, the redesign of Captain Britain, but also has an enormous crotch bulge, says, yes. one thing's for certain, Doc, you'll never hear the ladies complain about my shortcomings...
0: Yeah, I think they might all be penis jokes, huh?
1: No, no, the, the next one, the Iceman analog, be cool, snowman, chill out, and let all your troubles will melt away. I love the fact that like he thought this was a good idea. <laughs> uh, Mr. Everest, who is the giant man, exactly what makes you feel that your problems are bigger than everyone else's. And the last one, the fire guy, oh, God, it's all about getting caught onto the collar. Jesus, that's, that's sub-Mark Miller jokes there, Rob
0: Sub-Mark Miller? It's like sub-Bazooka Joe comic strip humor. Like, you know. If- uh, Mark, Mark Miller's
1: um, Human Torch is in my bank, so I re-read, reread Civil War this week. So.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. Which,
1: I have to say, you know what's really nice? The- I didn't realize that Mark Miller had, like, phases to his career. I'd completely forgotten there's an entire period where every character called everyone sweetheart.
2: <laughs> I had entirely forgotten
1: about that. And I'm reading civil War, and like literally within like the first three pages, three people have inappropriately called each other sweetheart, and I was like, Oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> I'm so excited. Woo! <laughs> it's this era, Mark Miller. Yes. Sweetheart era Mark Miller. <laughs>
0: As opposed to what we're in now, which I guess is later stage fuckface.
1: It, it's, yeah, it's sort of lazier, Mark Miller. It's the, you know, I planted a bomb in your uterus, Mark Miller. <laughs> hey, you think I'm joking? Do you not remember the, 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 did you not read Nemesis? No, I didn't. Did he actually plant a bomb in someone's uterus? <laughs> yeah, because the, the police commissioner's teenage daughter gets pregnant and he plants a bomb in her uterus, so if she tries to have an abortion, she'll explode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's the worst thing I've ever heard of in my life.
1: I can't believe you didn't know that until No, yeah. no, yeah, no. That's, that's actually, like, the third or fourth issue of Nemesis.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's, uh...
1: <laughs> Nemesis, as we said, is, even for Mark Miller, like, a new level of sensationalist, shitty storytelling... It is kind because of, um, I. Uh, what was the other one? Not supreme, superior. Did uh, first of all did superior ever come out past the first issue?
0: <laughs> I paid no attention to any of his shit because superior,
1: superior is much lazier than Nemesis, but not a shit. If that makes sense.
0: No, I I, I, I believe it because in a way I, it sort of seemed like it was a little closer to a traditional superhero comic, which Miller I think has written enough pages of that he could sort of hack it, you know, crap it up at a higher level of competence, I think. Is that the one where it's like the kid gets the powers from the super chimp from yeah, space? Yeah, from the super monkey, yeah. And that was the end of the first issue, and there probably hasn't been a second? Is no, I, I just
1: looked it up. Apparently there's been four. <laughs> Superior, the comic that was published with no one noticing, it seems. I oh, wow. honestly didn't think I had a second issue either, and apparently it's had four.
0: Wow. Well, I, I'm impressed that it, you know, it's one of those things where... You know, the comics internet is fascinating because the stuff that we pass over in silence, is it's it's never for um, a homogenous reason, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, there's the stuff that you pass over because it's not really worth your time to talk about. There's the stuff that you pass over because you actually kind of like the creators and it's sort of embarrassing. Or there's the stuff, like, I'm surprised that, like, it seemed like everybody and their dog wrote about Neonomicon issue two, and we spent some time talking about it. Um, I read issue four the other, I don't know, two three weeks ago. And of course, like a month late after everyone else, and I'm kind of like, huh? Did anyone want to talk about this at all? No. I mean- what what ha- what happens in it? Because I
1: was, uh, shall we say, slightly put off by issue two.
0: Right. Well, okay, so...
1: Oh, no, can I interrupt you? Just Even though I've just asked you a question, can I interrupt you? Because I've just looked up the covers for the last three issues of Superior. It is. it, issue three actually says, it's official, this book rocks, on the front cover. And issue four then follows it up with, the best book on the stands. Mm. These aren't quotes. <laughs> That's the best part. This is just banners saying that. It's kind of awesome. Anyway, Neonomicon.
0: Oh, Neonomicon. Well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm worried about spoilers, considering the the people who um, might be holding out for a collection or something like that. So I don't know. I guess, guys, uh, I'll I'll give you a heads up if you don't want to be spoiled. I mean, you know, in, in the intro, I'll try and tell you to skip which moments, but. Basically, Issue 2, right, She it ends with sort of a very disturbing rape sequence. Yes. Uh, issue 3 ends up with her hanging out, talking to the thing that has f- raped her. Um, and she ends up actually giving it a handjob because uh, her vagina is too sore from the constant rapings. Uh, so, and- so wait, is this Stockholm Syndrome or... Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not... Rape syndrome? Yeah, no, because it's, it's more like some sort of...
1: Is she like under something?
0: Well, it, at that point, it does not seem like it. Uh, <laughs> and it, it essentially seems like what has happened is the creature, although it has had sex with her, it does not seem to be essentially violent that the violence that has been implied by the murdered cultists that has happened in the previous issues with people being murdered and stuff is actually the work of the cultists this creature that has been summoned which kind of looks like you know one of Lovecraft's uh uh I don't know the the fish people I think that that created the the half fish offspring and the want to say the Dunwich Horror, I guess. Um, You know, so it looks a little bit like a creature from the Black Lagoon uh, is sort of sitting there, and then, you know, she's sort of like recovering, sort of half in shock, but, you know, when it tries approaching her and getting, you know, excited, she's like, no, you cannot put that in me. Uh, Here, let's just sort of get you off here. So she's sort of, it's some sort of coping survival mechanism, but as a result of doing it, it begins sort of trying to communicate with her. And so there's a lot of, you know, something between, you know, a, a lot of pseudo-language that, that Moore, you know, used to be able to do quite well uh, that's taken, you know, from the this, this stuff that popped up in Lovecraft text. Essentially what ends up happening is the, after talking with it for a period of sequences, the creature helps her break out. Of the place by taking her underwater and swimming out through the canal through which it came. And there, the cliffhangery sort of section for issue three is whether or not she's going to survive or drown. Then in issue four, you have the FBI or whatever the government agency come in and raid the cultists. Uh, which violently strike back. So there's a lot of people being blown apart and shot and stuff like that. They can't find the FBI agent. And she ends up actually calling the people and saying that she has, because she ends up actually escaping and stumbling, you know, nude down this seaside town until she finds an old couple who give her a coat and a phone and blah, blah, blah. So the last sequence in Neonomicon is. The woman talking to, well, she goes in to talk to the guy who had, we see behind glass, who seems to have lost his mind, who was speaking in, you know, uh, uh, this sort of uh, Cthulhu-esque faux language, and she begins talking back to him. And he's so surprised that he starts speaking to her in English, and they have a regular conversation and the gist of it is essentially that is that she's not worried about anything because she's she's realized that the stuff that Lovecraft was writing about was about things that happen outside of time. So you get a shot of her and the dude sort of communicating in sort of a multi caterpillar sequence. that's very reminiscent from the end of The Invisibles, um, you know, as they look, you know, as they're on some sort of starry plane, but it's mm. this. You know they're sectioned off, so to speak, and um, she says that uh, essentially that she is pregnant, and that the idea that Cthulhu lies sleeping uh, in you know underneath the sea uh, is it's basically in her womb. You know that that relay or whatever the house, the house of Eternal Dreams or wherever, is inside is. It, Calls coming from inside womb. her uterus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so instead of a bomb, she's got uh, a thing in there that she believes is Cthulhu. He too believes it and believes that she is essentially, you know, a goddess or something. And he's like, I'm not fit to talk to you. And she's like, eh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a sex addict, you know, <laughs> sex addict chick, but I am going to be carrying this baby to term. And who knows? Maybe it's controlling me. Maybe it's not. But when this baby's born, it's sort of things are going to change, essentially. And that's more or less the end of the book. And so it, I was really like, huh, this turned. This was a four-issue miniseries that could have come off as like a, a maybe super dense 10-issue... I mean, 10-issue, 10-page, uh, you know, creepy story, you know, I suppose. Uh, it, it, I was really like, huh, so that's it. Like, the, the twist is that... Cthulhu lying dreaming under the sea is actually supposed to be like it's not a prophecy about the past because they exist outside of time. It's a state of, you know, a prophecy of the future and what's happening inside her uterus. So...
1: Very... Part, part of me's tended to be snarky and be like, Alan Moore being lazy for an Avatar project? <laughs> um, but I also think... I was reading the... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it. It's like The Wonderful Worlds of Alan Moore or something. It's the Tomorrow's book about Alan Moore,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which is a very long um, interview with him, Mm -hmm. going from, like, his his birth all the way up to um, the end of ABC. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that, he's basically asked about his image stuff. Mm -hmm. And his response is pretty much the... I was trying to write what I thought they wanted to read.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Thing. And that sounds like what he's probably doing here.
0: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because, admittedly, the in, in the interviews on the Avatar site, he was like, oh, I'm in a very dark place, and this is my farewell to comics, and it's very black and bleak. And this was right around the time issue two came out. And I'm like, eh, I, don't, I don't necessarily know if it's that black or bleak. I mean... I sort of wondered the extent to which Neonomicon is a uh, allegory for Alan Moore's career in comics. You know what I mean? Um,
1: uh, I don't, but I kind of love the idea. <laughs> who is he
0: in this? He's a sex addict. Like Alan Moore is the woman who is this sex addict. Who knows a lot about Lovecraft and occult stuff and gets involved with these creepy occultists, thinking that she knows enough that she's going to be able to manipulate them into getting what she wants very easily, and then essentially ends up being raped and left for dead by them. And it's only, but it's all okay because essentially she becomes in contact with this occult force that ties her into this larger world of magic that is outside this sort of squalid, sex dungeon-y kind of existence?
1: I would love it if that was a conscious allegory. <laughs> but I am not sure that Alan Moore has that much. A, self-awareness, and B, self-comedy.
0: Ah, uh, that's funny. Um, well, I, I would disagree. I, I tend to think that he has both. Uh, oh,
1: I think he has both. I don't think he has that much
2: both.
0: <laughs> well, we will see in any event it is it's kind of it 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 is my theory about neonomicon uh in which case I think that it's sort of you know, but it's also kind of a, um, you know kind of a disappointing wet fart in a way. I just didn't think that it was was done especially apart from everyone, like, oh, my God, like, flipping out over, over the second issue. Issues three and four end up moving in, I don't know, it seems to me, like, somewhat different directions. And again, a very... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a it's a lesser piece of work. The, the allegory is about the best thing that you got going for it, and like you said, you kind of have to squint to see it, and I'm not really sure if I... Even if <laughs> I do... You're not really sure that it's there. Well, I, I kind of have feel that it's there, but I feel that unlike previous more work where i feel like you know his formalist nature leads him to all but take you know the subtext and eventually emerge it as text it seems a little curious that it's not quite that flat-out revelatory it may just well be that that love that he has what i think is a very deep misunderstanding of lovecraft i guess because the, the other element that comes through in Neonomicon is a lot of talking about sex, about that Lovecraft was afraid of sex, that he hated sex, and that you assume that it wasn't that there was more to the mythos than just sex, and at one point I think one of the characters is like, well no, obviously it's all about sex, you know and I mean, it's like, yeah, okay definitely, you know Cthulhu is this, you know uh, essentially a kinks con sized version of, you know, slobbering vagina dentata, you know, taking apart the civilized masculine world, you know, uh, one conspiracy at a time, you know. But, but I kind of think that what works for me about Lovecraft, as long as I'm chitter-chattering away here, is the idea that he... The Cthulhu mythos really works to me because it is a fear of everything, you know what I mean? Like, you really don't have a very comprehensive... Most books, like, or horror novels, you know, if you've got vampires, it's like, you can sort of tweak a way in which they are, you know, a, a Victorian fear of sex. You can look at them in which they're a um, working class fear of the aristocracy, you know, the feeding off the, the lifeblood of the proletariat. You know, you can do a lot of different things, but but it's very hard to... They sort of you know work in a certain realm of fear just as the same way that you know werewolves do or wizards do or demons and devils and stuff what i like about the cthulhu mythos is it really is a fear of sex that is also a fear of nature that is also a fear it is it is just a flat out fear of other in a way that figured out a way to incorporate sort of every discrete element of other that you can see in there
1: it, it's a fear that you can't not a fear that you can't defeat, but a fear that it's harder to defeat because it's not one thing that you have to get past.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and in a way, I think that's part of why the Cthulhu mythos ends up feeling truly mythic. Is it's, it? You can never slot it on a one-to-one basis. The more that you do so, the more it almost fails. You know, it it has to be actually much larger and in in a way that you know you, you're like. It, it really does end up translating into the fear of the unknown in a way that is somehow weirdly exactly specific, you know? And that's that's kind of the, to me, just kind of the amaz- amazing thing about it. Um, such that, you know, again, I found Neonomicon a very frustrating little noodle of a, of a book, uh, even, even with Moore's uh, potential own personal allegory, tucked or not tucked into it.
1: I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, had, I have to admit, I have, after reading the second issue, I had no desire to engage with it, A, mm-hmm. that deeply, or B, even really further.
0: Right. No, and, and I, I sort of wonder the extent to which people did. Like, I think a lot of people read that book just because of the controversy and either jumped off or they finished it and was just like, well, a, nothing much to say there. You know? Yeah, but here's the
1: thing. I think a lot of people jumped onto that book because of the controversy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then were like, well, I've seen the controversy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? I, I think it's a danger in that sort of thing. In a in a related note, um, <laughs> I got Dave McKean's celluloid in the mail this morning.
0: Ooh.
1: Uh, which, as you know, I've really, really been looking forward to.
0: Yes. Not
1: only because I'm a big fan of McKean, mm-hmm. but also as someone who really didn't like Lost Girls, mm-hmm. I was really curious to see how, to my mind, the second... Uh, mainstream creator trying to do comic pornography and make it classy mm-hmm. would fare. Um, I haven't read it. I should say that. I've, I've literally just leaf through it because I only got it in the mail like two hours ago. Um, <laughs> two things leapt out to me at first. Uh-huh. First, it's an entirely silent book. Mm-hmm. There is no dialogue or narration or anything. It's completely silent. Uh, and secondly, in looking through it, I was like, Oh, this is very Dave McKinney, but I don't really see it as porn until like there's a part where it's like, oh yes, it is. <laughs> there, there's actually a part where he manages to meld the two really, really well. Huh. Um, in a way that I did not expect f- from him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but also just in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was surprised to see it. Hmm. Um yeah, I, I really want to read it now. I really want to see how it works as a complete piece. I have the horrible feeling mm-hmm. that it won't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, if only because I think it might, the my surprise of, oh, he went there, might overwhelm the book. Right. And that's not true. Overwhelm the narrative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, which is which uh, is a, a problem. With- yeah, but it's. I think it's especially a, a problem when, your images are so loaded and you have no text to pull it back.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that's kind of, like, my first take on that was like, oh, well, that's kind of disappointing in a way, you know, but...
1: It's very disappointing because one of my favorite things about Cages was his dialogue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I Actually, like, he surprised me with the strength of his dialogue in Cages, and so I was looking forward to... Just for his second graphic novel, his first, like his first proper graphic novel that wasn't created to be serialized. I was really looking forward to seeing what he would do with character,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: essentially he's throwing away character in service of the visual story.
0: Well, or yeah, the the visual story, and I, I suspect kind of the emotional experience. You know,
1: yeah, it, it's I, I so yeah, I, I'm kind of dying to read it, but at the same time, like just looking through that first couple of things, I was like, huh. Okay, that's where he's going with that, right? And it was not what I expected. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that is—I uh... I say that partly because I think that um, if it were not a, it's like a thirty-five-dollar book or something. It's—it's wow. priced. Well, it's, it's a hardcover. It's like a. Sure. A, sure. It's thirty-five dollars, and does it have a page count anywhere? It does not have a page count, but I mean, looking at it, it's mm-hmm. definitely got to be like two hundred pages.
0: Wow, okay, well, that's great. I mean, that's you get some value for the, the moolah, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah, and like if you lo- if you, if you just like McKean, mm-hmm. right. it's, it's got some stunningly good work in there. Um, and it's very much in keeping with like a McKean for want of a better way of putting it, right? <laughs> um, like he moves between doing his line work, doing photography doing things that makes both doing a lot of photoshop trickery right um so you know on that level even if you're who have absolutely no interest in the story or or the concept Mm -hmm. just as a piece of mckean's work i I think like it's it's really worth seeing but i do wonder whether if it was cheaper it would be something that would get a lot more attention slash controversy
0: well We'll see because you have an advanced copy. It sounds like so. Yes, it's so not
1: it's, out, but it's out soon.
0: Yeah, and and, and up I, to I, I people like you to start making that controversy. Yeah. If I guess
1: anything. it's out in June. For some reason, I thought it was out next month, and I was like, I expected people to be talking about it by now, and they're not.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you're you're Mister <laughs> Bleeding Edge, sir. <laughs> Someone added me on
1: Twitter because I don't know if you get added on these Twitter lists.
0: Uh, I get yeah. I, I, I'm on more of them than I thought I was. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I recently got added to a Twitter list. I'm now looking up the site to get the exact name of the list that I'm on that I, I just found hilarious. Trenders.
0: <gasps> oh my god, dude! I know. That's amazing. I'm Trek- on like something like uh, won't stop talking about lunch or something. Like I'm 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 kind of the opposite.
1: Well, sometimes lunch is the most important meal of the day, Jeff. Come on. Well,
0: dude, I don't think that they were actually that uh, pleased by it. Uh, let me see here. Where can I find my lists here? Because um, now I have to look. Uh, yeah, now that we've said this. Now that you've said it, I'm like, dude, we're total. I'm totally, spo- no, seriously, mine are are things like people who like comics. You know.
1: Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of those. I've also got a lot of um, people who my friends talk to.
0: Yeah, right, which is a weird auto list, apparently. Yeah. So, yeah, that which seems to have picked up because I've got a, a bunch of those. Um, yeah, I mean, and so there are people that I, I know or know of, you know, like, Mizell has a, a list and, uh, you know, the other Jeff and um, the, the awesome Kenny B. Loggins. Uh, you know, but let me see here. Like,
1: Kenny that, B. Loggins? It's not Kenny Bloggins? I always oh, thought Oh, I bet it is Kenny
0: Bloggins. No, you're totally right. It's Kenny <laughs> Bloggins. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I totally, like, I end up on people, yeah, like the the comics homies list and things like that. So I don't get trenders, which would be
1: kind of... To awesome. trenders? I mean, holy crap. So, um, yeah, so maybe I am expected to trend.
0: Yeah, dude, but, I totally expect
1: you to trend. Uh, um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's actually, I guess, because uh, Jack and Fantagraphics trying to set up a, an interview with me and Mickey.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which I will, uh, I'm perfectly happy to say this eyelid. I will shit my pants if that happens.
0: Yeah, dude, that would be kind of awesome.
1: Uh, I'm really, really hoping it does, but also. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. As long you know, as long as you get a chance to talk to him and you find out that he still secretly resents you for like something that you did to one of his friends, and it almost ends up in a fist fight.
1: That, that's good i mean i hope i think we should all be hoping for that
0: yeah i i let's face it graham i always do whenever you mention your interviews now so
1: um <laughs> yeah i'm talking to uh, mark Siegel tomorrow
0: hey great yeah, yeah yeah i i oh wow i well you've talked before with him i thought
1: i've i have <laughs> my article a few times
0: yeah yeah so i mean it's like that should be awesome he and you know, he probably won't punch you at all, so...
1: Um, no, as far as I know, Marks is going to get along fine, so... I, if there is punching, it's going to be a sign that we do not get on as well as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a bad sign if there's punching.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, hmm. Ooh, uh, well, let's see here. What else uh, can we talk about? Uh, have you read
1: Action Comics 900? Dude, i was it was came there? out today. You made the What's would about say, to... dude? <laughs> like,
0: cut me some slack here. I was like getting ready to apologize for not being at the store, you know, last week, and you're talking about stuff that just came oh, out like three. You hours know,
1: ago. you know what we can talk about. Yes, I read the Superman Batman issue that you were complaining about last week.
0: Oh, good. This will be awesome. Yes, no, man?
1: because you're right and wrong at the same time. <laughs> it, did, it did annoy me, but only because I was looking for it after you said it. Oh, I, I think see. if I hadn't. Been looking for it. Mm-hmm. I it would have been fine, but I read it as in yes, this is weird. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, re- I read it was like an invisible you in my brain. Come right. On.
0: Yeah. See, you right know. there, Graham. Isn't that a little odd? Like that's that's a of Isn't that kind of weird? Come on, isn't that weird? <laughs> isn't that weird?
1: That's how I read it, and I was like, yes, yes, it is. Uh, so yes, you. That victory goes to you, sir.
0: Well, it's a partial victory because you said I was also wrong, or is it just more the fact that you don't think you would have noticed it? I don't. It I don't think I've noticed it. Uh, I see. I see. Okay, well, dude, I'm Craven. I will take any partial victory that I can get. Believe me, I'm like
1: woo. You're you're Craven,
0: the hunter. I, I, dude, as soon as I said Craven, I'm like. <laughs> you're like, damn it, damn it, Stan um, Lee! You've wrecked adjectives forever. Um, did you pick up
1: the final show of Casanova Gula?
0: No, no. Well, Or rather, didn't that come out last week?
1: Uh, I think it came out the week before. I could
0: do it. Oh, okay. Last
1: week week I went to the store for the first time in a couple of weeks, so a lot of this stuff. Uh, The
0: the answer of which is no. I did not. A
1: couple of things in there that might be of interest to you. Mm -hmm. One, uh, Matt Fraction says that he is no longer going to do back matter for his Casanova comics.
0: Oh, thank you, Lord.
1: um, Because he feels it overwhelms the comic. I think he's. I think he's been listening to you, Jeff. <laughs> uh, and thing number two, he changes a, a really important line of dialogue uh, in the reprint from the final show of the original Casanova. Oh, really? And he talks about how it's always annoyed him, and he's so glad that he's been he's managed to fix it, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I honestly can't tell you how much I hate the line that he has changed and what he has changed it to. Oh, wow. It, mean, it, it actually, like, comes close to spoiling this. It definitely spoils the scene. It comes close to spoiling the issue for me.
0: Wow. Wow. Interesting. Um, hmm. Is there a... I, I mean, I'm not worried about spoiling me, but do you want to... You it's, it's, like
1: it's, ca- re- it's come out for a couple of weeks, and
0: it's a reprint. So I think yeah, it's that's a, it's the point a, of spoiling.
1: Okay. Um, do you remember the last issue of Casanova from Image?
0: I do not, because I, I hopped off, like, maybe two volumes off, two issues into volume two, and I never finished reading it.
1: Um, the last scene is Casanova talking to, I think her name is mm-hmm. See who's come from the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cas has basically fucked everything up. Right, <laughs> Everyone has rejected him. He is completely fucked up. And she has appeared to past and said, like, I'm going to fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. And he says, you're from the future. Can I ask you something? She says, sure. He says, everything's going to be okay, right? In the end. Mm -hmm. And the captions are, oh God, please. She pauses for two panels. And then in the original comic, she says, yes.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And the final panel is Casanova not knowing what to make of that. Mm -hmm. And now she says, what do you think? Hmm. Hmm. And it's like, that really changes the scene. Right. Yeah, hugely. And to me, that goes beyond this last line niggles me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to fix it to you've changed the meaning of the entire scene right <laughs> <laughs> well I this, this yeah. is what he said when he because exp- he explains the change right he says uh, I thought I read off at least off from my intention somewhat I know all is subjective and stuff but subjectively it didn't hit right for me and objectively it's my fucking book and if we're adding color then I can tweak the last lines so the closing beat hit right or rather hit more right mm-hmm
0: well, I mean... I mean, he's
1: right. It's his book. He can do whatever he wants. Sure. But it changes last scene so much for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, very, very dramatically. I mean, like you said, if I would not have resolved the ambiguity, I guess, to the... Um, you know, I, and honestly, I mean, this is the thing that I think is kind of interesting. Saying it's going to be all right and having a beat and having this person say yes has kind of a great context of i mean i think i think it it creates a sense of expectation within the the reader writer contract that you can then or creator uh, appreciator context that you can then go on to exploit you know what i mean like you could have basically you know books where cast proceeds to get dragged through the shit thinking well but it's all going to be okay You know, and one of the things that's kind of interesting is, is that puts you in the position of, I don't know, I, you know, it it puts him in the position of, of person who might be behaving on wrong information and finding out later and being burned, you know, would you know, it, it, I think that that's, it's interesting to me. It's kind of,
1: I I think having the ambiguity of what do you think is so much more dull and closes off story potential. Right, so much exactly. more than having her say yes.
0: Yeah, if you say yes, then it's like, okay, like you said, yeah, like I just said. Like, there's a lot of ways you can twist it. Same, what do you think? Honestly, the thing that's weird is it actually is a much more cliched beat, I guess. You know yes, what I mean?
1: Yes, and like, also, it, uh, it, I feel like it's a cheat for, to have him then say, that's not an answer, or what the fuck does that mean, or something. Whereas right. yes is an answer.
0: Yeah, then you, you. it seems less likely that you're going to follow up on it, whereas opposed to what do you think, like, unless the next issue picks up from...
1: Would that be like, no, really, come on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like oh, I guess, like, okay. Yeah, no, that's, uh, huh. What did you think of the transition story, I know, or the new story that I know a lot of people seem to like? I, I'm i really glad a lot of people liked it. <laughs> I have to say it's, I love the title. It's one of the most awesome comic book story titles I think I've, I've ever
1: did, 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 did.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Uh, it's the most interesting part of it is the character who is apparently really deadly is Matt Fraction. Mm. Visually, like visually, is Matt Fraction, mm-hmm. uh, and he is unknowingly causing disaster and killing people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But. It's it's a throwaway story.
0: Hmm, interesting. Did you read Sean Whitsky's take on it? Because I actually kinda like Whitsky's take.
1: I did not. I actually didn't read anyone's take on it until after I read it and I read it late, so
0: Right. Well, if you get a chance, hunt it up. I, I think he posted a thing on Supervillain which I, I happily read. And it's interesting because I think for me, I'm like, huh, uh, I I think you might read Sean's take on it and go, Well yeah, but you know, so it'll be kind of interesting. But you're
1: wrong. Well,
0: no, 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 not, not even but you're wrong, but kind of, like, as 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 you do, Graham, go, yes, but isn't that obvious? Like, isn't that, like, clear from, oh, like, am I, of am
1: I, am I as bad as Tim Callahan? <laughs> no. I, guys, the reason I'm saying that is I, I love the Splashy podcast, and I love listening to Tim and Chad talk, mm-hmm. but... Tim has this thing that I think I do as well, and it's kind of funny that you say that, where someone will be like, Here's my point. And the response will be, Sure, but everyone thinks that. <laughs>
0: Actually, I do have to say one of the things that you do that's pretty awesome is, is like, if I ask you a question that you clearly have no interest in, you answer it as if you clearly have no interest in it, which is (laughs) pretty great. I'm
1: I'm sorry. I I will try and...
0: (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, at least you're not faking it. But, I mean, it's kind of like the...
1: The other thing I do that Kate always, 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 when she listens to the podcast says is she's like, stop interrupting Jeff. (laughs) Me for recording. She actually sent me in, uh, and I am in the middle of recording Be like, stop interrupting, chat.
0: You know what? I think it's all for the good. Otherwise, you get me talking about Neonomicon for like 35 minutes. So I think there's definitely there's times where we have our give and take and sometimes there's a little more, like you and I, like there's times where we do the um, uh and Gus Gus way of just kind of yapping over each other until eventually someone just shuts up and the other one finishes but I think for the most part we're pretty well behaved.
1: I was there's also time for like one or the other business reading book it's talking about books the other one hasn't read so it's just like yes I will listen to you talk about that
0: oh yeah oh yeah I mean as I think someone pointed out we we had a pretty good sweet spot where it was Graham and the Grumpus whereas like you would read books and I'd be like no tell me about that and then you'd say things and I'd be like huh <laughs> Vince Coletta anecdote from 20 years ago and it kind of worked you know it it kind of was sort of uh, helpful so
1: I think Grim and the Grumpus is the next name for for the podcast
0: I think so I think so because I'm I'm a little tired of every time I go to search on wait what like NPR is like wait wait don't tell me shows up oh god yes all the time I'm like dudes like it's not even an exact match like Sure, it's probably being listened to by tens of millions of people, but, you know, fuck you. Whereas, you know, Graham and the Grumpus, like, I have no idea what we would get.
1: The problem is Graham and the Grumpus sounds like a really bad, like, talk radio show. Do See, you know what I mean? Like a, a breakfast show.
0: Oh, right. Like, I, feel, I feel like, like
1: she'd be like, you know, let's talk about the weather. And you'll be like, oh, the weather.
0: And then we'll have a soundboard where it's like, wonka, 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 wonk, that kind of thing. Yes, wonka 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 wonka. <laughs> <laughs> Notice my personal sound effects library is impress- is really sparse. Wonka, it's like
2: wonka, wonka, wonka.
0: like I have no idea what it is and secondhand Fozzie bear imitation. So uh,
1: Okay. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna tell you about Action Comics, wasn't I? Yes, uh, nine hundred. Uh, Action comics, nine hundred. Great conclusion for the Superman like story. Which has a real problem by being the same story that continues the Doomsday story, <laughs> oh dear. which is not so good.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, but the like stuff is really... just really nice. Like, there's some really nice beats in there.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to spoil it for you, and also don't, because I know that you're probably going to read it at some point.
0: I am, but it may... if it came out last... no, it came out today. There's a chance today. it might be yeah. gone by the time I get there. Why don't you spoil I- Yeah, okay then. Big boy, yeah, go for it.
1: Lex finds out that Superman is Clark. And his reaction is actually really nice. Oh that's Uh, great. And the the resolution of what Lex can do as a god Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is really nice as well. Like Paul Cornell has some really nice Lex moments in there.
2: Oh
0: good.
1: Uh, the problem is, like, the story thing continues onto the Doomsday thing, which just is not as interesting. I'm sure. At all.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I kind of, I was sort of hoping that they would have just maybe a teaser for the Doomsday thing and then go into that fully next issue so that he'd have time... Well,
1: that's kind of what it is. Like, Mm -hmm. Doomsday stuff is uh, the entirely not-dead, Steel, Mm -hmm. Eradicator, Supergirl, and Superboy. Um having been collected by Doomsday. And like that is like a separate story that's interspersed between the pages. Right. And then maybe the last four or five pages of the story is Superman getting involved in it. Mm. So I mean you could easily ignore right. the Doomsday stuff. Uh it's just kind of it sours the, the Lex stuff.
0: Mm. Yeah. That that's kind of a drag. Well I mean again it's my thing of yeah, that that's a little too much. Like in a perfect world it'd be the conclusion of the the Lex storyline, you know, le- that particular Lex arc with his, you know, com- supposed omnipotence or potential omnipotence, uh, and then going on to deal with some other stuff, uh, like at the very, you know, like sort of classic Marvel style, like in the last page, Doomsday breaks He turns around with, and he's like, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The thing crashes through with all of them sort of, he's holding them all by the capes or something and it's like, next dish, you know, but Yeah. What you're gonna do? Uh, interesting. So that, that said, like as a five
1: ninety-nine package for hundred pages, essentially,
0: mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah, that's that is great.
1: Like, and, uh, and you get some material. like so it's like fifty odd pages is Cornell, mm-hmm. and then it's backup stories after that,
2: mm. uh,
1: including Ryan Sook doing a complete story for the first time in ages.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, um, probably because they managed to get... They so it's like eight pages It's, yeah,
1: it's like ten pages, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is written by Damon Lindelof of Lost. Ah. Uh Then you've got Paul Dini and R.B. Silva. R.B. Silva being the artist from the Jimmy Olsen backups that everyone liked. Right. Jeff Johns and Gary Frank do four pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, there's, there's a t- terrible um, Richard Donner storyboard for a Superman story, which is... yeah. <laughs> It's not very good at all, um, but overall, like as a package, it's really nice.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, I I will use the Ryan Sook segue to mention that I picked up via the library the Brightest Day hardcover. Uh, I guess which has the first.
1: It's for like first eight issues,
0: right? Yeah, something issue zero plus the first six or seven or something like yeah. that. So. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like a chunk of story. And one of the things is at the end in the various things that they have is they've got that, you know, that sort of lovely... uh, Oh,
1: the table thing?
0: Yeah, yeah, where they reprint each of the individual covers for it. And then they have a very small, you know, unfortunate, you know, assembly of all the pieces. So it's the small assembly. I'm like, oh, I remember liking that. And then looking at each of the individual covers up close... Uh, a good chunk of them, I think, are done by Ryan Souk are sh- gorgeous, like really just lovely stuff. Like, I'm like, huh, I probably enjoyed that more than I enjoyed the first six or seven issues of the book. So.
1: <laughs> You're not happy that it all leads up to Swamp Thing coming back? You know, not, f- only, not only Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. If you've seen, been on the internet today, you've seen...
0: Who else? Oh, is it official conf- confirmation? Con, con, yeah, of Constantine? Yeah. yeah, Constantine comes back. Soon. I'm very happy to say that I called that a couple of weeks ago, but. Uh...
1: Yeah, I, I am incredibly amused at seeing people being like, well, that's a fuck you to Alan Moore. It's like, really? <laughs> First of all, do you think he cares?
0: <laughs> Second off, don't you think when everyone in DC management signed that enormous birthday card that said fuck you and then mailed it to Alan Moore was probably a bigger fuck you? I just, I find it was so funny,
1: especially because I have actually also read um, Saga of the Swamp Thing Volume 3 this week. Ooh, really? And I haven't actually read these issues before.
0: Wow, right, because you're just not a more man. So you never know. made it through the saga of the Swamp Thing stuff.
1: Uh, and so I really, and I'm also, my first reaction is there is nothing here that could not be done by a mainstream DC book right now. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely nothing. Oh, yeah. So, Swamp Thing could easily be as good a book today mm-hmm. with the right creative team. Whether it gets that creative team, fuck knows. Right. Um. But also... Swamp Thing as a concept has kind of been dead for a while. What's the problem with bringing it back?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's fascinating that people were... like people seemed a little more, kind of way more uh, a, a Twitter, so to speak, about Constantine than they they were about. Swamp
1: Thing. I think it's because they were already that uh, ver- the vertical bit was going to get canceled, and today Dedeo's today like, nope. Right. <laughs> Why would we do that? It's a successful look. Mm-hmm. He pretty much is just like in interviews put into place that there is going to be like Earth 1 and Earth Vertigo.
0: Yeah, I, it makes sense. To, again, I want to say, like, Punisher and Punisher Max. Totally called that. Although, I don't know, maybe I wasn't talking with you. Maybe I was talking with Hibs. Hibbs- I, I, no. uh, well, I, I, I think... But
1: I think that's what it is.
0: Dude, like I said, I am craving the Hunter. I will take my small victories where I can get them. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about flipping through those first couple of issues of brightest day is it is very closely tied to earth stuff like right off the bat i mean admittedly they could have gone lots of different ways with it i
1: i reread the like a big chunk of them the other day Mm -hmm. uh because i in part because i got to the second last issue and i was like something has come out of fucking nowhere and it really hasn't yeah (laughs) it's just that it's been laid down so subtly Mm -hmm. that you could completely avoid it but it's actually all through the book from the start
0: yeah, that's what I thought, was, like, looking at this uh, stuff from the start. I mean, there's a thing where, like, Boston brand, like, grows the forest in the middle of Star City or something. And it's like, huh, yeah, it's really... it. I, when, you,
1: when you know what the end is, it's really obvious.
0: Yeah, it's really obvious. And so I'm like, you know what? I kind of have to give them sort of partial credit for that. It doesn't feel like as tacked on as it originally felt. It doesn't make up for the fact that these, this book is just a kind of a goddamn sloppy mess.
1: Oh, I mean, Jeff, you've got to keep reading then. I, <laughs> it gets, I swear to God, like, the third act is a, it's horrible.
0: Oh, I'm sure.
1: I'm uh, sure. Especially the Firestorm storyline, oh. which has the most amazing cop-out. Like, literally, I can't believe they turned in the script and everyone at DC didn't turn around and be like, seriously, you can't come up with anything better? Well, we should just get it done. Because it's stunning. The, the Firestorm... Uh, the, the climax of Firestorm is crazily truncated.
0: Oh, I I believe it. Because there's actually shit where, like, just rereading it, I'll have to look back on it. But at one point, there is the absolute hilarious scene where the atom dives inside Firestorm's head through the flame. Yes. Which, come on. Like, that's just, like, the craziest thing ever. And then you've got this whole sequence where... Basically, it flips out and it starts splitting in half, and you know you've got the professor running for the blast door chamber or something. And then I swear to God, by come the next time they pop up, it's sort of like you know they're kind of hanging out in the hospital. Like there's no like oh the right Adam's okay because he he was unaffected because he's, <laughs> yeah, <'cause> he's fine yeah because he's fine it really was it was just like wow you guys really just like slopped your way out of that I mean. It's fascinating to me the way in which Brightest Day is so it it it's it it I don't know, it could well end up being Jeff Johns's Waterloo, kind of, in a way. I mean, just, just in the sense of the hubris involved of him being like, well, I can do 52 as long as I do it with, like, one other dude and we do have as many issues, right? Like, it, it's fascinating seeing him do the stuff that you saw happen in 52, but just far, far sloppier. Like, I think far sloppier. You know yeah, I, mean? I,
1: I really think that, and I don't know if this is... You know, all of a sudden he's got all these other responsibilities in DC, mm-hmm. or what? Mm-hmm. But it, there's there's he someone lost control of it very visibly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah, And it really towards the end, it's it's much more visible, and it's kind of a shame because the end of the first collection ends with the like the video game. This is what you must do to get your life back.
0: Oh, I know. So, it, it, which which very is very like, arbitrary, too. You
1: know. No, but also, like, I like, I really like that because it's like, this story is going somewhere. It was the first time that was like, this story is actually going somewhere. Well, yes. Like, you might not understand where the somewhere is yet. Right. But it's going somewhere. And now that, like, we're on the last issue, Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, so, you know, I'm glad that you got there. But you got there in many cases by, like, jumping.
0: Right. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. There is something that was, was so, like, I mean... I actually kind of like the idea of like it's all these little pieces set set up like clearly it's like you throw the boomerang, you catch the boomerang, you. I was like, okay, it's sort of clever if it comes together well, but I'm also sort of like it, it suffers so strongly from things basically the the book being propelled by this this mysterious force in a way that's like really sloppy. Like the,
1: the problem really is that the. I guess the swamp thing should have been brought in
0: earlier. Yeah, almost. I think so. Because I think at um, that point you'd be like, oh, wait, what? You know, and it would have a little bit of, at least you'd have a sense of something driving the bus that is not clearly the riders, that is not clearly basically the riders, I guess. You know what the, I
1: mean? The, yeah, the, the, the plotting gets so sloppy towards the end that mm-hmm. um, the second last issue is, you know, there are all these natural disasters. The earth is fighting itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only mention you'd seen of that earlier was two issues earlier,
2: mm.
1: with someone from the Justice League going, look at those dark clouds. Mm. And it's like, I can see, you know, I can see that that's meant to be foreshadowing, right. but it's so weak as foreshadowing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that it doesn't work. It feels like it's a massive jump. And I think that's from the brightest day all the way through. There is all this foreshadowing for Swamp Thing and the Parliament of Trees.
0: Oh, yeah. Huge. But
1: it's so vague
0: mm-hmm.
1: that Swamp Things still nonetheless like I understand you know they want to keep him a surprise he still nonetheless seems to come from nowhere
0: right right yeah no I I can imagine well and even I mean this is the problem is even like when you sit down and you're like oh okay I'll just reread this all then and see where the clues are it's like wow those clues are they're in place in between the 20 pages of near drunken rambling fight scenes you know where it was just like what I do want to say, though, and this is kind of interesting, one of the scenes that struck me in reading The the Brightest Day Trade, and it was, it it actually did make me think about your, like, why do we read superhero comics? Um, Question. Is there's a scene. It's actually a very long scene. It made me think, just because I haven't read Peter Tomasi nearly as much, and it seemed to have a different rhythm that I thought, maybe it might be him. In part, because it was, you know, John's tends to sketch his like personal interaction scenes like about as much as necessary to make them efficient and then sort of jumps on but there's a scene I'm sure you probably remember it where the Martian Manhunter goes to the daughter of the Professor Erdl who brought him back and John transforms his because he's a shapeshifter he transforms himself into the form of the profess- the deceased Professor and because he's a Mind reader he basically is able to telepathically know everything about the relationship with this woman and her father, and he basically takes her out of her bed and they fly, and she recounts all the stuff that happened about the the first aborted Martian experiment. Do you remember that? yeah I thought actually that it was it wasn't so much an incredibly moving scene as much as it was an incredibly moving idea because John treats her with a lot of love is like, I will be back to visit you soon, you know, and all this stuff that she wanted to say to her deceased father, she's finally able to say, and she thinks that she's dreaming, but of course she's not really. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had this weird thing of like, you know, I'll be honest. Like, we read superhero comics for, like, things that, like, you know, like, I kind of had this moment of, like, I don't know, like, why John Jones isn't doing this with his powers every day of his life. Like, it feels to me like it would be far, far more emotionally helpful. It would be what a superhero would do. Rather than like, oh, hey, it looks like on the monitor that uh, something's flooding. I better like call in Aquaman and Batman while I eat some Oreos. You know, like it was kind of like, wow, this well, is something you could do with this character that's incredibly resonant and moving and helpful to people in a way. And it's like, and you,
1: yeah, but but the answer is that it would never, it wouldn't sell. Well.
0: Right, it probably wouldn't sell, but but this is the problem. I mean, when we jump inside and outside the stuff, I guess I, I guess you can't really answer why you read superhero comics or why you don't read superhero comics without going outside the frame. But I do think that it was one of those moments of like, wow, this is this is really uh, it points to something, and it's probably an incredibly overlooked scene in a book where I mean, in that. Same Martian Manor Hunter storyline, you've got that absurd sequence where Crazy Martian Chick shows up and, and slaughters, like beheads somebody with a tentacle while like eviscerating someone else. It was just like, wow, this is just like, like you said, the whole thing about, you know, Alan Moore's stuff being okay, acceptable for a DC comic now. Like, apart from the fact that he was, he had Swamp Thing have sex, and there's the unfortunate, you know, creepy incest stuff from one storyline, like, the violence is far less than what you see, what I read in just, you know, good old, plain old, brightest day, you know? Firstly,
1: I think you can get away with sex and incest in the TCU comics now. Uh, do you think? I, I, yeah, I really do. Now that they've completely dropped the comics code and said, you know, this is rated T for Dean, I, uh-huh. honestly, I honestly think they could reprint everything from Almer Swamp thing. In a DC comic, and no one would bat an eyelid.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I, I I would like to think that you're right, um, but I'll have to take your word for it because I'm just not tracking where DC's going or has been. I guess. And did you have a did you have a delightful second point about that?
1: Uh, I have entirely forgotten it, so <laughs> I it's not a very good point. <laughs> I was going to agree that you, you're right about it being Tomasi. Tomasi is the the long standing. Uh, Martian Manhunter mm. fan. Mm. Um, but also, Martian Manhunter's kind of been doing that for a while behind the scenes.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, not that blatantly, but there's definitely a line in Morrison's Justice League mm. that he's like, the, he's like the private superhero because he is this life that no one ever really sees. Mm. Right. And I, and I think there was some sort of an implication like he was doing the quiet stuff before. Martian Manhunter's been like the... Martian Manhunter's been the 1950s Superman for a long time. Right. He's been the nice guy with all those powers. Right. Um, and so, like, it seems completely in character if that makes sense.
0: Oh no, it, no, no, it, no, no! Exactly. It, it it does. It's but just but part this, of the. I, was... I guess what
1: I'm saying, so in character that it doesn't. It didn't really leap out to me the way it leapt out to you. Right.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I think you actually have had Martian Manhunter much more strongly on the radar and has been a fan, whereas I've been like kind
2: of a
1: yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I think we've talked about this, and I'm much more kind of a "Eh." but. I was like, wow, that's kind of lovely, and also again, just this idea of like, but it's almost too lovely in a way that it's sort of like it probably says a lot of really dull things about me that I would like some, I don't know, some less violent, you know, punching. I guess from characters named Punch Man uh, and characters who have really interesting powers like that looking at what it what they would be what you could do with it I mean you probably couldn't do a ton of stories it would basically turn into the ghost whisperer with like a green bald guy but I don't know I, I there's I part of it, so myself I like it. <laughs>
1: What? Were you were you around again on Twitter? Like, this is like the Twitter episode of oh, wait well, uh, When I was talking about John Stewart from Green Lantern and how much I missed the Mosaic series. Uh,
0: no, I. You know, and did you ever read
1: the Mosaic series?
0: I still have not. Which of course, everyone. I mean, that is talk about a beloved series from the nineties, man. Seriously.
1: Yeah, I can't believe they've not reprinted it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I I miss that John Stewart because that John Stewart a did not have the military background, which has since come to define the character. Like John Stewart ever uses his rings these days for some reason he's always making a gun and being a sharpshooter.
0: What? Really? A, yeah, really. Like, it, it, the,
1: the War of the Green Lanterns plot right now, like, they've all got different rings because they can't use the Green Lantern rings. <laughs> and, like so, they all, like, so Hal puts on his Sinestro ring, gets his Sinestro Corps uniform, and, you know, whatever. Guy puts on a red la ring, gets his uniform, and John puts on, like, the compassion ring, and honestly gets put out in purple military fatigues. Oh. And that's, be- that's become, like, the weird hallmark of the character. But oh. in Mosaic, before that was retconned into his past,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he was this pacifist. <laughs> he was this pacifist who was going mad, aware mm. he was going mad, mm. uh, had completely unresolved grief issues, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and was this incredibly complex character.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: Mosaic was a series that was all about... Mosaic was the closest you'd ever get to a vertical DC universe book right Um, because it just was like there's no good or bad Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
1: like there's an entire plot which I'm sure Jeff Johns must have read which this first three issues four issues Mm -hmm. John is possessed by Sinestro and doesn't know Mm -hmm. Uh, and he ends up expelling Sinestro Mm mm-hmm and he's like, yeah, I've, I've lost something, because I didn't just expel Sinestro, I expelled the bad parts of me, and that makes me an imbalanced human.
2: Hmm.
0: Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I know, that book's stuff, widely loved. I really have to check that out. I don't mean to I, cut you off, of course.
1: But... No, no, but it, it it really was, it was the sort of um, depth, I think, that you want from, like, this Martian Manhunter
0: story that you're talking about.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But it's the sort of thing that gets replaced by, he's a military sharpshooter,
0: right? Yeah, which is crazy because I mean I remember one of the things that I liked about John's early work on Green Lantern was his whole idea that that each of the characters sort of used the willpower of the ring like a different way, I guess, and because like so like because Kyle's an artist, it sort of gets drawn you know and because John's an architect or something at the time it's like his stuff is sort of impressively like engineered and architecturally sound and sort of complex in a while in a ways whereas like Guy and Howl are like we punch things you know yeah pretty much (laughs) we make big fists yeah Yeah. exactly so I I thought that I'm like oh that's very clever but the idea that he's like yeah oy um it's just
1: really it's, it's incredibly reductive um And and there you go.
0: (laughs) Well, which which does bring up the question here, Black Avengers. Do do you want to discuss more?
1: Um, Do I want to discuss more? Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I feel really guilty about Black Avengers. Do you? Olga, because I'm... Tom Brevoort said it on Friday, and no one said anything. And I linked to it on userama on Monday, and then Tuesday, people are like, "Tom Brevoort is racist."
0: Absolutely, people were all over the map on it, which I thought was great.
1: I, I thought it, I thought it was fascinating. My, like I said in userama, and I said later on Twitter, uh, is I have like crazy liberal white guilt about it, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't trust my own feeling about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that the right. Writer and the right concept could make it work. Right. But I think the idea of like having Black Avengers just to have Black Avengers is like, why? Like, next step is gay Avengers. Do you know what I mean? Ooh, la, la.
0: Well, okay, here's my thing. Uh, Because I think, and I I also should
1: say, I don't think Marvel could do it as well as DC could do it.
0: mm, Ooh, interesting. Do you want to tell me more about that?
1: I think Marvel's black characters are much more one-note than DC's. Uh, And I also think that... Which isn't to say that I don't think DC's black characters are pretty much Mm one-note. But I think the one-note is more conducive to them being a team.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: I think Marvel tends to do the... I mean, really, with the exception of Luke Cage, and that's entirely down to Bendis. Mm -hmm. Marvel does the angry black man.
0: Uh yeah, well, it's I mean, their default, but I feel like all of those characters have moved through stages. Like, I don't think I think Black Panther usually is not an angry black man. I think the Falcon has gone through iterations of being the angry black man, but also more than that. You know, I yeah, mean, I, no, it's true. I mean, I I think one of the things that's interesting to me is is that if you look at seventies Marvel in general, there's only kind of five types anyway you know what I mean like there's there's the wisecracker there's the angry guy there's the angry wisecracker you know and uh, so what you're saying is
1: there's three types there's, yeah. there's there's also the genius
0: there's the genius and then there is kind of the the good soldier I guess you know what I mean like the speech maker yeah you know and and there's a lot of crossover between, like, the genius and the speechmaker, because half the things that Captain America says in the 70s are things that you could almost see Reed Richards saying at that point. Or, yeah, because yeah. it's not really the genius of the speechmaker as much as it's the father figure. Right. Yeah, I guess that's actually it. Right. But, like, the wisecracker, I mean, Spider-Man talks like Daredevil, talks like... Uh let me think who's Human someone torch? else who jumps around. Yeah. Human torch, like a lot, somebody else who like jumps around and kind of like taunt, like, Hey, you know, where's your wise cracks now? Bunky, you know, kind of thing is like, it. it's really pretty standard for, uh, so my, that's my personal take on things. And it, it could be wrong. And a lot of the women talk, like pretty much all of the, say the women, you know, like the seventies angry woman was kind of like spread pretty evenly across the board up until a point. Yeah, you know? uh, and it it took a long time. It wasn't until late '70s or early '80s that I even feel that those characters sort of started separating. But rereading them, like rereading an issue of Defenders, I'm like, wow, most of these characters sound the same, and a lot like the characters in the other books written by this. Yeah, episode. no, exactly.
1: I, I mean, you reread Avengers or Defenders from the same time, and it's like the books are pretty much
2: interchangeable.
0: Yeah, yeah like astonishingly so. So, uh, oh right, the hothead. I guess the hothead would be like the human torch and hawkeye and you know, maybe maybe a few others, you know, when they're not a wise-cracking hothead, you know. But uh, all, all of which is to say that uh, my personal feeling is is that uh Black Avengers I although uh, I I think that it's not a great idea. My thing is is that the part that bugged me and I think also bugged everyone else is, is the idea that it is somehow worse than all the other terrible Avengers ideas.
1: That Wait, yeah, but but he, here's the thing and this is where I think Revert is either being misunderstood or not explaining himself properly. Mm-hmm. What I think Revert is trying to say Mm-hmm. Is that in his mind the Avengers has to have characters of a certain stature, and that not enough of those characters are not enough of those characters are black.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, therefore, to have a black Avengers, you would be having characters below a certain stature. Where his argument falls apart is when you look at some of the Avengers books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> like I, I, Avengers Academy. No,
0: right, or even Secret Avengers. Yes. Secret Avengers are all, I mean, that team is only half a hair away from being the champions. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: but let's let's face it, New Avengers Mm -hmm. is pretty much the Defenders.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm just, I'm like, I've always, I mean, I personally believe that with any super team, have enough, you you know, you got two or three A-listers. And maybe his point is, is there are not enough, you know, A-listers that are black that you can't come up with three of them. But I'm sort of like, I okay, personally. Right think, now,
1: can can you?
0: Can can I come up with three black a listers? Marvel, yeah. No, I think I think Luke Cage has been elevated to an a lister. Hmm. I would say that Black but, Panther is an a lister. But oh wait,
1: has Luke Cage because he's not his own book? Do you think a Luke Cage solo title would be cancelled? Uh...
0: See, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh cuz what I what I worry about cuz
1: the, the ones I go for would be Luke Cage, Black Panther and War Machine.
0: Right. But and then, none you, of them have really supported their own books. And who who would you get to fill out the team after that is the, is the other question. Well, I mean and that's that's the part where things start getting interesting. Like yeah, like do you do you, would you put the Falcon in there? Would you put like mixed members in there? But so But also like
1: are you stuck with the team that has like Rage and Misty Knight? Mhm. Because mm-hmm. outside of Misty Night and Storm, a Storm, mm-hmm. um, like where are you black female characters in Marvel?
0: No, I know, I know. I mean, I, I and and don't get me wrong. There's not enough characters. Are at that point, I there's I see nothing wrong with starting to create them. I mean, I was a huge fan. Being a huge fan of of Englehart's Avengers means that you love Mantis and, and Swordsman, yeah, right. Who are like are the Vision? Yes. <laughs> The Vision is a perfect example, who at one point was the most, you know, popular character in the book, you know? And I, I think that that's, you know, there's a lot to be said for creating characters for a team, even a super A-list team like that, because they're sort of where the drama happens, you know? I
1: I, I do have the perfect solution for Marvel in this one. Yes? Bendis stealth turns an Avengers book into Black Avengers, at least for a storyline. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've even got the plot Oh really A crazy, crazy Militant, ter- militant terrorist group uh-huh. Somehow takes all the White superheroes Out Only leaving the black superheroes In the Marvel Universe to save the day And Luke Cage has to gather them together hmm. I think that's Just do it and don't tell anyone you're doing it but just one right. day be like Look at Avengers today
0: Right, well, I I mean, I would love to... I mean, this is the thing that I think is interesting, because I do agree with it. It it reminds me of something that, like, Dwayne McDuffie said, you know, that that was circulating after he passed.
1: Oh, the the wonderful Negro Thrashers.
0: (laughs) No, there was that. That was great, too. But, no, he talks about how the whole idea of, like, if you put, like... three black characters on a team, all of a sudden there's like an agenda there. Oh yeah, and he
1: got shit for that when he had the um Justice League. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I was I was like, huh, yeah, that I, I wonder if like if someone like Bendis could like put that many characters of color on a team and it would like kind of just be overlooked because the idea is like, oh, well, Bendis is white, therefore he's not trying to further an agenda. Or if people would be like, oh, he's obviously a guilty white liberal, he's trying oh, to further No,
1: an he'd, he'd get the guilty white liberal act.
0: Yeah, right off the bat.
1: There's no like, way you could fill a book, any book, mm-hmm. with an all-black cast without people being like, there's a reason for this. <laughs> no way. No way I mean, do you remember, I, I don't know if you ever read um, The Crew, which was like Priest's Black Panther spin-off?
0: Psst, I tried. I, Priest <laughs> is such a problematic guy for me, but yeah, I tried. The Crew had
1: a team of three characters, mm-hmm. one of whom was black, mm-hmm. and it was called a Black Book.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, interestingly, you mentioned that on your blog thing, and a few other people tried to correct you on that. Are they not right?
1: Uh, they're, they're definitely wrong.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay, fair enough. I, you know, I,
1: they're I, probably remembering there was definitely a guy because, as far as I remember, I I could be wrong, but I'm fairly sure I'm not. There was a Mexican white guy and kind a of black guy.
0: Right, right. Um, my my personal feeling is, and this is kind of it's here's why I think that actually DC could probably do this and Marvel couldn't uh, is that. DC is more comfortable with publishing books that, say, that sell, say, 16,000 copies than Marvel sure. is. Mm-hmm. And at this point, and I feel like, I think that, honestly, an all-black team of heroes could probably sell about 16,000. Like, if it was awesome, it would maybe bump up to 20,000. But to me, I'm like, that is so close to what your mid-range is selling now. Why not, you know? And here's the other reason is, and I'm sure that someone is going to step in and correct me, is that usually the way that, that you know, people, minorities and, and oppressed gathered power was sort of like being um, a sort of gathering together in a group, you know, uh, in their own, you know, obviously in San Francisco where you've got something like the Castro neighborhood, it's it's kind of a building block to power, you know, so... And, and also, as somebody who grew up in the 70s, where, there, where Norman Lear had black sitcoms that were very deliberately trying to be, you know, black sitcoms, you know, I, I feel, and not in a Nameless and Andy kind of way, that, that I'm kind of like, like, why not? Like, what's wrong with having, like, because again, my feeling is, is there have been crappy super teams before, you know? Exactly. Like,
1: it's not like this will be the first bad super team ever to have existed. Exactly.
0: Have it around for long enough because at some point that will start to change the situation. If you start introducing characters of new characters of color or not of car- color in that thing, it's, it's like just, like, fucking have the commitment behind it. Like, Marvel doesn't have the commitment to anything but but taking money from people.
1: The other reason I think the DC could do it is that DC's black characters are of a status within the story
2: mm-hmm.
1: that if they were like, I'm getting a team together, people would be like, okay, because you've got Steel. Mm-hmm. Or Mr. Triffick, who's the leader of the fucking Justice Society? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, people are like, okay. He, you know, I can, I can believe him as a leader of a team. I can believe him as someone the other heroes would respect enough to get together. Right. That I, I honestly think that if DC were like we want to do this, mm-hmm. they could actually make it work from a story standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is at, at, at the at the at the risk of moving us into to waters that we um, quickly backpedaled out of previously. My personal feeling is is that I don't think that Tom Brevort is racist. I do think that I believe that the our institutions are racist, and if you don't fight against them. You are participating in. So, to me, I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't think Tom Brevoort's racist. On the other hand, do I think that he he obviously doesn't really have much of a commitment to trying to change the situation? So he's not a lot of help. And I personally think, like, eh, if a few people call him racist, then if it makes him think about it, maybe that's not such a bad thing.
1: First of all, he's not going to think about
0: it. No. Well, of course not.
1: But also. Tom Brevoort has no interest in changing me up the the status quo. I am stunned.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose I overspoke, didn't I? <laughs>
1: it's, no, it's just I... The reason Marvel will never have a Black Avengers book mm-hmm. has less to do with franchise protection mm-hmm. and more to do with they have absolutely no interest in doing that Because it would be seen as controversial And Marvel does not want to be seen as controversial They want to be seen as being seen as
0: controversial mm-hmm. Oh yeah, exactly, perfect They want people to perfect. think, oh my god,
1: you're shaking everything up But right. they do not actually want to do something that will actually cause, con- cause controversy Right. Which See is- the mm-hmm. tea party signs in Captain America And the insane backpedaling to get out of that one.
0: Oh yeah Oh, yeah.
1: It's exactly. not us. The letter. Oh, God. Oh uh-huh. <laughs> man. Um, no.
0: Don't worry. We'll make sure we never reprint that again. We we guarantee it. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I mean, and that's the thing that's really sad to me. Because back then, even as unfortunate as some of the ideas that went behind creating Luke Cage originally might have been, at least at least it, it was an attempt to change things, and at least things tried to change, you know? Like, yeah. And I think that's... I really
1: do well, think that's Ma- Marvel fun. used to be forward-thinking.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. They but used Mar- to be- Marvel has
1: not been forward-thinking for... What? At least 20
0: years? Right. Oh, at least. I mean, Marvel used to... Yeah, And here comes the hated term... Used to think outside the box, you know? Like, and I think now they're pretty much specializing in how the fuck can we maximize what we're getting out of this box? You know? This box is great. Yeah, what we, if we had another couple of boxes just like it? If that, they're like, hmm, what happens to the box if we like relaunch this title again as a new number one and then we rechange the numbering back to issue 800? in six months later, I bet the box is probably going to cut you know, kick out a little more bucks for that, you know? Bet the box would love that. <laughs> the box loves it when we change around with numbering. <laughs> Again, maybe not quite the highlight of us having uh, Gus and and uh Gus Gus and, and um oh God, why am I forgetting the other box <laughs> name? Ernie. Ernie, thank you. I was going with Bert. I'm like severely wrong. so close. So I know. Close I know. Isn't that wrong? I, I think I might have called him Bert earlier. Yeah. How embarrassing. Yeah. Ernie and Gus Gus run the industry. Uh, you know.
1: Now well, I, 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 they would just be like, you know, what was absolutely great? Squirrels. <laughs> Well, you know, that's... This month, Green Lantern Squirrel, it's all chip, all the time.
0: That agenda is one that you can stand behind, Graham, and don't pretend otherwise.
1: So... Oh, no, I'm all
0: in favor of the
1: Green Lantern Squirrel.
0: <laughs> and squirrels generally, come on.
1: That's, no, I can't deny my love for the squirrel.
0: Yeah, yeah. Listeners, yet...
1: in case you don't know, I really genuinely do think that squirrels are fucking spectacular. <laughs> It really is one Jeff, of the best Jeff things. Jeff is not making a joke. I really am nope. a big fan of squirrels.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's one of the best things ever. If you get a chance to see Graham's photo collection where he and Kate are out in the woods and slowly the focus changes to squirrels, it's awesome. It's one of the best <laughs> things ever. Um, yeah.
1: The, the funniest part of you saying that is Kate and I went to a lake.
0: Uh huh just like because it was a really beautiful day on
1: uh, saturday and we're like let's go for a walk with the dogs hooray and we're taking photographs so i'm thinking i am like look there's a
0: squirrel <laughs> see graham it's it's something that she knows she's got to be aware we all are it's and it's a wonderful thing it's it's i'm not trying to shame you in the slightest if you're tired of squirrels you're tired of life yeah <laughs> That's a that's a takeaway. It's like why do I
1: read superhero comics?
0: Exactly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Squirrels. Yes. The final tier. <laughs>